history and the sources of Egyptian myth. The relationships between deities did not become fixed at one moment, but went on to change and develop for thousands of years. Priests never gathered Egyptian mythology into one authorized version or harmonized it in any long literary work comparable to Hesiod's Theogony, an important source for the study of Greek mythology. Comparatively, only some literary treatments of myths survive from any stage of the Egyptian language. Ancient Egypt's mythology must be pieced together from various written and visual sources. The extent and nature of these sources varied greatly during the 3,500 years that the native pharaonic culture dominated Egypt. The remainder of this chapter will give a historical overview of the sources of Egyptian myth. Proto-dynastic dynasty zero and early dynastic periods dynasties one and two circa 3200 to 2686 BCE. According to a tradition in ancient chronologies, Egypt was originally divided into separate kingdoms of Upper Egypt in the south and Lower Egypt in the north. King Manes was said to have united these kingdoms and founded a new capital at Memphis to balance the two lands. Menes cannot easily be identified with any specific king known from contemporary records. Early kings. Plenty of archaeological evidence exists for a series of powerful southern kings in the late 4th millennium BCE. The hieroglyphic writing system may have been invented for administrative and ritual purposes at the court of these kings. Two early towns were associated with their rule Nagada, later known as Ombos, where the local god was. Seth and Nakan, later known as Hierakompolis, where a falcon god was prominent. This falcon god came to be identified with Horus, although Horus seems to have been a northern god in origin. There is much less evidence for a unified northern kingdom at this time. The gods, Seth and Horus, were later presented as warring opposites needing reconciliation. Some Egyptologists have argued that a historical war between Ombos and Hierakompolis, or between the north and south of Egypt, originated the myth of the conflict between Horus and Seth. This historicizing approach to myth has been out of fashion for many years, but has recently been revived. Objects from the late pre-dynastic period belonging to kings called Nama, Aha and Scorpion have been recovered from temple deposits at Hierakompolis and Abydos. These kings may have been rulers of most of Egypt. They all contributed to the legend of Manis the Uniter. The ritual objects belonged to a formative stage in Egyptian art. Strict rules were being developed to govern the content and style of the art used in palaces, temples or tombs. This formal court-based art rapidly replaced previous styles and became the standard canon for over 3,000 years. Myths often focus on episodes of intense conflict or tragedy, but the Egyptian rules of decorum usually made it impermissible to illustrate such episodes in formal art. The images used in art were felt to have the power to affect the real world, so the order had to be shown, triumphing over chaos and good over evil. Violent, mythical episodes such as that in which Seth tears out the eye of Horus were not represented directly, the king and the gods. From the first dynasty onward, every Egyptian king was called a Horus. The extent to which Egyptian rulers were regarded as divine is much disputed. But the kings of the early dynastic period certainly enjoyed more power and responsibility than anyone else in their culture. They were rulers of the first large nation-state in history. The king was the political, religious and military leader of this state. Royal annals for the early dynastic period partially survive in a copy of the Palermo Stone and related fragments. The annals list, the kings of Egypt, starting with a series of prehistoric kings, 
Seal impressions and small bone or wood labels of the early dynastic period portray kings engaging with various deities. Mesopotamian seals and sealings of a comparable date appear to show episodes or characters from myths set in the realm of the gods. The Egyptian pieces mainly show deities as resonant in statues or cult objects in manufactured shrines. The labels record or anticipate visits by kings to shrines in different parts of the country. The royal annals record many years for which the most important events were deemed to be the dedication of cult images, or the king's participation in rituals such as spearing the hippopotamus, or visiting the sacred lake of the god Herishaf, he who is upon his lake. There is plenty of evidence from the early dynastic period for a complex pantheon of Egyptian deities who could be represented in various human, animal, or semi-human forms. Whether myths about these deities were current at this stage is hard to say. The unification of the country and the subsequent patronage of local cults by each king must have led to some organization of the pantheon at this time. Deities began to be grouped into pairs, groups or hierarchies. The creation of relationships between deities previously worshipped in isolation may have generated myths. The two ladies and the two lords were among the earliest pairing of deities. The two ladies were the goddesses, Nekbet and Wajet, in the symbolic language that had developed to express ideas about kingship. The two ladies represented Upper and Lower Egypt and were identified with the White Crown of the South and the Red Crown of the North. The two lords were Horus and Seth. Early dynastic kings associated themselves with Horus by showing a Horus falcon on the Serik that enclosed their names. At the start of his reign, the names and titles taken by a king identified how he manifested Horus and acted as a kind of policy statement. During the Second Dynasty, a king called Peribson replaced the Horus falcon with the curious composite animal that represented the god Seth. Peribson may have been trying to assert the primacy of his local god, but he seems to have lost his throne to a king called Kasakemwi from Hierakonpolis. Kasakemwi placed the Horus falcon and the Seth animal above his name and included the phrase. The two lords are at rest in him in his title. This is an early example of the Egyptian tendency to present actual conflicts in mythological terms. Two sculptures of Kasakemwi wearing the white crown may be the oldest known statues of a specific historical ruler from anywhere in the world. The king's enemies are shown as a chaotic mass of contorted figures under his feet, so the statues embody the triumph of order over chaos. The reign of Kasakemwi marked a change in royal policy. Recent excavations have confirmed that he built several huge funerary complexes at several sites. More of the country's resources have been diverted toward the royal mortuary cult. The emphasis shifted from a system in which the king honored the gods and goddesses in their local shrines to one in which the gods and goddesses were brought together to help sanctify the king in life and the afterlife. This trend developed further in the Third Dynasty dynasty. Some Egyptologists place the Third Dynasty dynasty at the end of the early dynastic period, whereas others put it at the beginning of the Old Kingdom. Ancient Egyptian king lists gave particular prominence to a Third Dynasty ruler called Nerikari, later known as Djoser or Zosa. His reign was regarded as the beginning of a new era. Old Kingdom dynasties 3 through 6 and First Intermediate Period dynasties 7 through 11, circa 26, 86 to 2055 BCE. Later, the Egyptians looked back on the Old Kingdom as a golden age of stability and achievement. 
King Djosa was remembered for thousands of years as the king for whom the first pyramid was built. This was the Step Pyramid at Saqqara, one of the world's earliest great stone buildings. Early dynastic kings had high-walled funerary enclosures in mud, brick and separate tombs under great mounds. The two forms were put together at Saqqara, so the mound had to become higher to be visible above the great enclosure walls. A mound was also the focal point of some early temples, such as Hierakonpolis. Such mounds may represent the primeval mound that features in Egypt creation myths, but there is no written evidence from this period to confirm this. The Pyramid Builders The man in charge of building the pyramid complex of Djosa was an official named Imhotep. Literacy was mainly confined to such officials and their households during this period. Many of these officials served as part-time priests in the cult places of deities and deceased kings. Imhotep, a priest of the sun god at Heliopolis, was later credited with writing a book of wisdom. This earned him a place as the first of Egypt's great sages and eventual deification. The tradition may reflect a real advance in the uses of writing at this period. Long-connected texts have only been developed in Egypt centuries after the introduction of writing. An incomplete naos in a shrine from Heliopolis that dates to Djosa's reign is carved with some of the earliest known integrated texts and reliefs. The images of the gods shown in the carvings on the naos are accompanied by short speeches saying what they will do for the king. These images may be the oldest surviving representation of the energy of Heliopolis. A group of nine deities that was very important in the creation myths recorded in later times. Some of these myths could already have been current, but whether they were written down or existed only orally needs to be clarified. A type of religious text that does seem to have developed in this period was the topographical list. This listed deities according to their cult places and summarized their functions and qualities with epithets. Some epithets, such as Horus, protector of his father, suggest the existence of a story behind them in the fourth dynasty. The king's rule was redefined as the son of Ra, the deputy of the sun god on earth. Sneferu, the first king of the fourth dynasty, was one of Egypt's greatest builders. Three pyramids were completed during his reign, each with two temples for the funerary cult of the king. Later, the literary tradition favored Sneferu, but not his successor, Khufu or Cheops, the builder of the Great Pyramid at Giza. Writing in the 5th century BCE, the Greek historian Herodotus reported a legend that King Khufu had been cursed by the gods for closing down their temples to divert resources to his pyramid. Archaeological evidence suggests an element of truth to this tradition. Local temples received little royal support during the 4th and 5th dynasties. The huge pyramid complexes of this era concentrate wholly on the king's divinity. But this is partly an accident of preservation. Reliefs and statues in the badly damaged pyramid temples did once show the king interacting with many of the deities of Egypt. Pyramid complexes have been interpreted as resurrection machines for the king and as models of the Egyptian cosmos, making them a kind of mythology in solid form. The kings of the fifth dynasty had smaller pyramids, but several of them built magnificent temples for the sun god. The favored elite who served old kingdom rulers were rewarded with beautifully decorated tombs in the royal cemeteries. Many tomb owners had personal names that linked them with deities such as Hotep, meaning God was satisfied. The inscriptions in their tombs tell us that many of them were part-time priests in the temples and shrines of deities. But at this period, showing even a deity statue in a private tomb was not permissible. 
The general reticence about religion in daily life makes it difficult to know much about the gods at this period. A rich new source of evidence appeared in the 24th century BCE when hieroglyphic inscriptions were carved inside the pyramid tomb of King Wani or Unas. These inscriptions, composed in the language known as Old Egyptian, are now called the Pyramid Texts. The Pyramid Texts. The Pyramid Texts are the oldest of the three principal collections of Egyptian funerary literature. They are also among the earliest religious writings known from anywhere in the world. The texts are divided into sections. Each is preceded by an Egyptian phrase, meaning words to be spoken, but sometimes translated as spells or incantations. These incantations can be as short as a single sentence or many paragraphs long. The Pyramid of Kingwani contains around 300 incantations, but more than 800 are currently known. Pyramid texts have been found in the pyramids of five old kingdom kings and three queens. No, two pyramids have exactly the same selection. No illustrations accompany the pyramid texts, though. The ceilings of royal burial chambers were usually decorated with stars. Many hieroglyphic signs consist of images of living creatures in the writing of the pyramid texts, potentially harmful creatures such as snakes, scorpions and some kinds of birds, and people are often shown dismembered or skewered with knives. This suggests that there was a strong fear of the latent power of images during this period. The texts have been adapted from various genres, such as hymns, lists of divine names and epithets, spells from the type of magic used in daily life, and the recitations accompanying ritual actions. Many were composed in the first person and would have been highly dramatic when spoken or chanted aloud. Some incantations may have been passed down orally for generations and only written down when the pyramid texts were assembled.
Middle Kingdom and Second Intermediate Period Dynasties, 11 through 17, circa 2055 to 1550 BCE. Once Nebepetramentuhotep was established as king of Egypt, he ruled from Memphis and built shrines for important gods throughout the country. He was eventually buried at Western Thebes in a mortuary complex whose dominant feature represents the primeval mound, where creation began in the 20th century BCE. Kings of the 12th dynasty built a new royal residence called Egito and were buried under pyramids at various desert sites. None of these royal tombs was inscribed inside. Elaborate temples for the royal mortuary cult were built near these pyramids, but none have survived in good condition, nor have many of the temples built for deities during this period survived. One tantalizing text known as the Ramesseum Dramatic Papyrus seems to be the script for a religious ritual in which the king reenacted mythical events such as the coronation of the god Horus. More is known about the religious life of the government officials and their families who formed the elite of Egyptian society in their decorated tombs. Nomarchs could be shown presiding over religious festivals and venerating sacred objects. Other modes of religious activity and belief could be presented in encoded ways. Short hymns to deities that might have been sung at festivals started to be written on tomb walls or funerary steles. The coffins in elite burials of this period were sometimes painted with texts and scenes that formed part of the second of the major collections of funerary literature, the Coffin Texts, CT, the Coffin Texts. 
Coffin texts are a modern name for the diverse body of spells or recitations used on burial equipment during the Middle Kingdom. These texts were mainly painted on wooden coffins, but appeared on tomb walls and funerary items, such as stelae and canopic chests. The coffin texts were composed in Middle Egyptian, a form of the Egyptian language that became standard for literary works. The texts were usually written in simplified cursive hieroglyphs, but some examples are in hieratic, a script developed for administrative and literary uses. Modern editors of the coffin texts have so far assembled 1185 different spells. Only a small selection of these was used in any one burial. Many spells in the coffin texts are also known from versions in the pyramid texts. Both collections may derive from an archive of mortuary texts written on papyrus that does not survive. Some coffin text spells are given titles that define their function, such as spells for navigating in the great bark of R.A., or include instructions for the rituals that should accompany them. A few spells incorporate elaborate glosses to explain obscure passages. These may reflect the way that religious knowledge was expounded among the elite. Some spells are monologues spoken in the person of a deity, beginning with phrases such as I am the inundation deity who provides food. Others are dialogues between deities that amount to miniature religious dramas. A few sections of the coffin texts have vignettes, illustrations that form an integral part of the spell. The most elaborate of these are the maps that belong to a section of the coffin texts, known as the Book of Two Ways. Usually painted on the floor of coffins, these maps are the earliest known maps from any culture. The Book of Two Ways was nothing less than an illustrated guidebook to the afterlife. It claimed to give two routes by water and land through a sinister divine realm beyond the horizon and provide the deceased with the spells they would need to get past the monstrous guardians they would meet on the way. The deceased had to pass through the mysterious region of Rosto, where the body of Osiris lay surrounded by walls of flame. If the deceased man or woman proved worthy, he or she might be granted a new life in a paradise called the Field of Offerings. The Book of Two Ways has been described by Eric Hornung as representing the results of government-funded research into the hereafter. But research may be too academic a word. The extraordinary visual detail in which the afterlife is presented has a hallucinatory quality similar to the spirit voyages induced by shamans in many cultures, although they are not narratives. Some spells in the coffin texts describe major events in the Egyptian creation story and even provide evidence for Egyptian views about the end of the world. The creator, God, Adam Ra, and his offspring Shu and Tefnut are particularly prominent. Many texts deal with transformations of the sun, God into various forms. A new element stresses the dangers the sun god faces during his celestial voyages, such as attacks by the chaos monster Apophis. The prominence of the solar cult leads some Egyptologists to believe that the coffin texts were like the pyramid texts, mainly generated by the priests of Heliopolis. Other Egyptologists point to this collection's huge range of deities and see the coffin texts as more representative of regional traditions. Coffin text spells have been found in sites all over Egypt, but the majority come from the geographical region known as Middle Egypt. The local deities of Middle Egypt, such as Thoth and the group of primeval beings later known as the Ogdoad of Hermopolis, feature in many of the spells. Thoth also appears in many of the spells that allude to the conflict between Horus and Seth and the rescue of the body of Osiris by the time of the coffin texts. All the elite dead could be identified with Osiris, the god who died and rose again. 
literature. The same learned class of priest officials who composed or used the coffin texts were also the writers and readers of Middle Kingdom literature. The hymns sung to deities each dawn in temples, and when statues of deities left their sanctuaries during festivals, can contain beautiful poetry. Such hymns were sometimes copied onto papyrus to be enjoyed as literature or inscribed on stelae dedicated by pious individuals. Middle Kingdom hymns mainly consist of sequences of divine epithets, but these can help reconstruct the myths that may have been current about deities in this period. Popular in the Middle Kingdom were texts in which a father instructs his son on the right way to behave in life. These are often known as instruction or wisdom texts. One of the topics instruction texts deal with is the proper relationship between humanity and the gods. So they sometimes allude to mythical events such as the sun, God's decision to destroy rebellious humanity. Other literary works that deal with ethical issues are in the form of prophecies or dialogues between a man and a supernatural being. In a text comparable to the biblical book of Job, a man named Ipuva or Ipuva questions the Lord of all about why suffering and injustice are rife in Egypt. God's replies are not well preserved in the only surviving manuscript, but the gist is that people must accept responsibility for their actions. Some Egyptologists assign the dialogue of people experiencing poverty to a genre of pessimistic literature that describes Egypt as a chaotic society. These texts were thought to be written during the turbulent First Intermediate Period or shortly afterwards, but they have now been redated to the High Middle Kingdom or even the Second Intermediate Period. The texts mythologize the past to praise the present or predict the future. They see Egypt as a battleground in a continuing cosmic struggle between order and chaos. Literary narratives had developed by this period, though only a few have survived. There was a parallel tradition of oral storytelling. Most Egyptian texts were intended for reading aloud, and stories could have passed from an oral tradition into a written one and back again, as they have in Arab storytelling in recent times. In some Middle Kingdom stories, gods feature as characters. If the definition of myth as stories about gods is accepted, these narratives might count as myths, but they are really about people who happen to encounter gods. Another common definition of myth is stories about the world of the gods, but these Middle Kingdom tales are set in the human world, sometimes in a specific historical period. A series of linked stories set in the Third and Fourth Dynasties describes marvels performed by the magicians of this era, such as transforming a wax crocodile into a real one. In the framing story, five deities disguise themselves as people to help a mortal woman about to give birth to triplets destined to be kings. An incomplete story tells of a terrifying encounter between a herdsman and a seductive goddess. Another relates how an official sent on a mission was shipwrecked on a mysterious island. There he encounters a giant serpent who seems to be a form of the creator sun god. One Middle Kingdom narrative that only features divine characters is a fragmentary story about the attempted seduction of Horus by Seth, an event alluded to in the pyramid texts. Some Egyptologists refuse to class this as a true myth because it may have formed part of a spell used in healing magic. Heka, the Egyptian term usually translated as magic, was one of the forces used by the Creator to make the world. Humans were permitted to use magic daily to protect themselves or heal others. Knowledge of written magic was confined to the literate elite, so, unsurprisingly, some spells have a distinct literary quality. Healing spells often identify the doctor-magician with a deity skilled in using haka, 
such as Isis or Thoth, the patient with a deity who suffered in myth, such as Horus, the child and the disease, or problem with a hostile supernatural force. These identifications were sometimes extended into a narrative of the misfortune that befell the deity and its ultimate resolution. A complex story about the poisoning of the sun, God, known as the true name of Ra, is an example that may have been composed as early as the Middle Kingdom. By creating these links, the Doctor Magician hoped to mobilize cosmic forces to act on behalf of the patient as they once had on behalf of the deity. Although some mythical themes that occur in spells are not known from other sources, there needs to be a shred of proof that a specific kind of unorthodox mythology was specially coined. Indeed, the efficacy of such spells partly depended on the patient's familiarity with the story they were being made a part of. Similar links between human and divine events were created in visual form on magical objects of the Middle Kingdom and the Second Intermediate Period. Ivory wands that protect newborn children and their mothers show many divine beings, some in monstrous forms. Many of these have been identified with the deities of Middle Egypt, who feature in the coffin texts, Brief inscriptions on some of the wands state that these deities have come to fight on behalf of a particular child. The wands are based on a myth of an endangered divine child. Hundreds of years before, such a myth is clearly delineated in narrative sources. Some creatures shown on the wands, such as the griffin, feature in Egyptian animal fables known from much later periods. The wands suggest an almost lost world of oral traditions concerning the gods. They were also among the first private objects to include depictions of deities. Although most of these are not in the formal style found in temples, the late Middle Kingdom and the Second Intermediate Period were times of intellectual and religious change at the height of the Twelfth Dynasty. The power and influence of the provincial elites had been suppressed by the crown. This seems to have been one of the factors that led to a decline in the use of coffin texts. By the Thirteenth Dynasty, Royal authority was also in decline, which may have led to greater freedom of expression in religious art and literature. Images of deities started to be shown on votive objects dedicated by non-royal people, particularly in the holy city of Abydos. Middle Kingdom inscriptions tell of festivals at Abydos, in which many people joined in ceremonies that reenacted key events in the myth of Osiris. Around this time, an ancient royal tomb at Abydos was re-identified as the burial place of Osiris. This merging of mythical and physical geography was to become increasingly characteristic of Egyptian culture. That culture suffered a setback when a Palestinian dynasty took control of the Delta region of northern Egypt during the 17th century BCE. These foreign rulers, known as the Hyksos, established a capital at Avaris, a region where Seth was the highest deity. Seth was equated with the Palestinian god Baal, and the worship of foreign goddesses such as Astarte and Anat seems to have been introduced into Egypt at this time. Hyksos kings called themselves Sons of Ra, but one bore the name of Ra's archenemy, Apophis. A legend tells how King Apophis picked a quarrel with the Egyptian ruler of the Theban area by complaining that the roaring of the hippopotamus, kept 500 miles away in Thebes, was disturbing his sleep. This new kingdom story restates the political conflict in mythological terms by making it into a fight between the followers of Horus, the Thebans, and the hippopotamus-worshipping followers of Seth the Hyksos. The Theban rulers who made up the 17th dynasty gradually drove the Hyksos out of Egypt. Under the 17th dynasty, 
a new collection of funerary texts became the famous Book of the Dead. The expulsion of the Hyksos was completed by King Amosi, the first circa 1550 to 1525 BCE. The Egyptians considered him to be the first king of a new dynasty and a new era. New Kingdom dynasties 18 through 20 and third intermediate period dynasties 21 through 24, circa 1550 to 747 BCE. Amosi and the other warrior kings of the early 18th dynasty took Egyptian armies as far as the Euphrates. They established an empire in Syria and Palestine and took control of much of Nubia in the late 16th century BCE. The royal court moved back to Memphis, but Thebes became the religious capital. Most new kingdom rulers were buried in underground tombs in the desert wadi, now known as the Valley of the Kings. The offering cults for the dead kings were carried out in separate mortuary temples, some way from their tombs. Amun, the most important god in Thebes since the Middle Kingdom, united with the sun god and became the king of the gods. The Temple of Amun at Karnak in eastern Thebes developed into Egypt's biggest and richest temple complex. The 18th dynasty is often considered the high point of Egyptian culture. Much great art and architecture was produced during the reigns of Queen Hatshepsut, circa 1473 to 1458 BCE. Her nephew and stepson, King Thutmose, or Thutmosis III, circa 1479 to 1425 BCE, and the latter's great-grandson, Amenhotep, or Amenophis III, circa 1390 to 1352 BCE. Hatshepsut's famous mortuary temple at Deir el-Bari in Thebes had many innovative features, such as an open court for solar worship, inscribed with a summary of the ruler's secret knowledge about the sun god. Hatshepsut and Thutmose III built special shrines where ordinary people could pray to deities such as the goddess Hathor in her cow form or Amun of the hearing ear. Amenhotep III enlarged or founded numerous temples and many of the features introduced by his architects remained standard for around 1500 years. He commissioned huge numbers of divine statues to stress his identification with all the deities of Egypt. Amenhotep III sometimes gave himself the attributes of a lunar deity, while his chief wife, Queen Tai, was identified with the goddesses who could play the role of the solar eye. Amenhotep III and Tai were the parents of Amenhotep IV. Circa 1352 to 1336 BCE, who early in his reign changed his name to Akhenaten. King Akhenaten and his chief wife, Nefertiti, were dedicated to the cult of Aten, a form of the sun god represented by the solar disk. Akhenaten built huge temples for Aten that were open to the sky. He established a new capital and royal burial ground at Akhetaten modern Tel El Amarna. Akhenaten suppressed the cult of Amun, but the idea that he closed down all of Egypt's temples seems to be an exaggeration. In Akhenaten's theology, worshipping Aten as the creator, sun god and the king as his representative on earth, made other deities and their myths superfluous. Belief in a separate realm of the dead ruled by Osiris was replaced by the idea that spirits of the dead could live on in the Orton temples. Akhenaten's religious and political policies were not popular, and under the boy King Tutankhamun, or Tutankhamun, circa 1336 to 1327 BCE, Thebes was re-established as the religious capital and Amun-Ra as the national guard. Horemheb, circa 1323 to 1295 BCE. 
the last king of the 18th dynasty presented Akhenaten's reign as a time of chaos in which the gods had abandoned Egypt. Horemheb was succeeded by his vizier, Ramesses, or Ramses, the founder of the 19th dynasty. Ramesses' son said the first, circa 1294 to 1279 BCE, was a vigorous king who re-established Egyptian authority over parts of Syria. But the art of his reign has a serene beauty. Seti's son, Ramesses II, ruled Egypt for 67 years and became a legend in the ancient world for his magnificent achievements. His battles against the Hittite Empire were celebrated in narratives, poetry, and pictures on the walls of the numerous temples he constructed in Egypt and Nubia. Ramesses eventually made peace with the Hittites and married two Hittite princesses. He constructed a new capital in the eastern delta but should have paid attention to Thebes. The 21-metre-high columns of the central hall at Karnak, built under Seti, the first and Ramesses the second, give a sense of limitless power. After Ramesses' long and prosperous reign, the international situation became more difficult for Egypt. His son Meremptah had to fight off invasions by the Libyans and the mass migration known as the Sea Peoples. The same enemies in even greater numbers faced Ramesses III, circa 1184-1153 BCE, the second king of the 20th dynasty. He defeated them by sea and landed in battles recorded on the walls of his fortress-like mortuary temple at Medinet Habu. This whole temple is a monument to the triumph of order over chaos. But Ramesses III was the last great temple builder of the New Kingdom, temples and kings throughout the New Kingdom. Much of the wealth generated by the empire and by the exploitation of Egyptian and Nubian goldfields was spent on building and endowing temples all over the country. The small, mainly mud-brick temples, common in earlier periods, were replaced by large stone structures whose walls were carved with hieroglyphic texts and scenes of kings with deities. Major temples were like small towns with granaries, slaughterhouses, workshops, offices, schools, libraries and housing. Large numbers of priests, some working full-time, were needed to run such temples, like the pyramid complexes of the Old Kingdom. New Kingdom temples were models of the Egyptian cosmos. The undulating mud-brick walls surrounding temples may have represented the primeval waters that were thought to surround the inhabited world. Sacred lakes were used for reenactments of myths of the emergence of the Creator from the primeval waters, or for the pacification of his fiery daughter, the goddess, in the outer courtyard. The king was represented in reliefs or colossal statues as the champion of Mart. The battles that he was shown fighting were sometimes real and sometimes imaginary, but the foreign enemies always represented the forces of chaos. The massive pylon gateways resembled defensive structures, but they also stood for the mountains of the eastern horizon between which the sun rose. The plant-shaped columns of the inner halls formed a stone replica of the marsh where gods were born or reborn. The innermost sanctuary containing the cult statue was said to be built on the primeval mound, the very place where the Creator first brought forth life. Each temple was dedicated to one main deity, but in the New Kingdom it became common to group deities into divine families with subsidiary temples for the chief deities. So at Karnak, for example, Amun was worshipped as part of a triad with Mut as his consort and Khonsu as his son. Not all these groupings seem to have been based on existing myths, but some of them eventually generated myths to explain features of their cult.
The relationships between deities could be expressed by moving divine statues between temples during religious festivals. These processions in which the god was carried inside a boat-shaped shrine gave ordinary people their only chance to get close to the sacred images of their deities. The names of some of the festivals listed in temple calendars suggest that reenactments of myths were involved, but such reenactments were rarely depicted. Most New Kingdom temple reliefs show a ritualized exchange between the king representing humanity and a deity representing the divine realm. The king makes offerings or performs rituals. God responds with a gesture or an object that symbolizes the bestowal of divine gifts, such as long life or power. Among exceptions are scenes that form a narrative sequence about rulers' divine conception and birth, such as Hatshepsut, Amenhotep II, and Ramesses II. It is typical of Egyptian pictorial narratives that some incidents or details are only found in the text, whereas others are shown only in the reliefs. The text, for instance, describes a sensuous encounter between a queen 